0: On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, as had Jesus. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. I invite you to be seated. Oh my, it was a wedding day. Weddings were a big deal. Weddings are still, for most of us, a big deal. In Jesus' uh, day and in the Middle East to this day, weddings though lasted not just one day, but seven days. And the host, the bridegroom was the host of the wedding, not the bride's parents, but the bridegroom was responsible for putting on this ceremony and this display of abundance that would unfold over a seven day period with continual feasting and dancing and entertainment. And halfway through, three days into the party, they run out of wine. It's kind of a nightmare if you're the host. Everybody knows that anxiety, right? If you've ever planned a party on any scale, you know the anxiety of, will there be enough food? Will the guests have a good time? Is anything gonna go wrong that's gonna totally humiliate me for the rest of my life? Will I be good enough? What do others think about me? Those are those subtle, anxious questions we carry in our hearts I think all of the time. There are a lot of different ways of feeling inadequate. The wedding is a symbol for life. One minute life is great, right? It's like a party. Everything is just grand. We're having a ball. Our friends are with us. Our health is good. We're celebrating. The next minute, just like that, things can go awry. You know, we get a a diagnosis from a doctor and we didn't want to hear that diagnosis and it changes everything before our eyes. Or we have a breakup with somebody we love or financially things take a turn for the worse or we lose a job, our employment starts to give us grief. There's just no end to the things that can suddenly make it feel like the party's all over and the joy has dried up. Mary hears about the problem. I'm sure there were whisperings somewhere in the crowd or among the family members. And of course, it's a small town and everybody's related. So she's hearing it, the whispering, the scuttlebutt, the anxiety is infectious. Somebody is feeling really anxious. Somebody knows the wine is out and she's heard about it. And now she has become anxious because anxiety is catching. Anxiety runs through our society and our relationships, just like wildfire. Um, And you know that feeling, maybe, of being anxious. I know, I know, it's, it's that agitation, that churning in the pit of the stomach, a sense of foreboding, feeling restless, unsettled, a nagged feeling that something's not right, it's not good, and all we want is for whatever it is that's causing the anxiety to go away and be solved, we want the problem to be absent. It reminds me of, like, watching a giant flock of birds and something startles one bird and the entire flock, you know, just takes up to the skies. We act like that. It's ingrained in us. It's part of our instinct somehow that if there is panic in the numbers, that we should all be panicked. But it's not good. And we don't make our best choices, our next best moves when we're feeling that panic and anxiety. Instead, we're just reacting. We're not choosing, thinking, and problem solving. All it takes is one, not reacting to settle everything back down again. I was in a swamp in Louisiana years ago. We were actually down there on a mission trip. And so there were some members of the congregation with us and we went out on one of these uh, alligator swamp tours, which I want to tell you are are, are ill-advised. They're run by people who feed alligators on a regular basis, which is like something that's not wise. But here we were on the boat, and they have all these alligators, 10-foot, 8-foot alligators, swimming up to the boat and practically trying to get on board because, you know, they know they're going to get fed. And then when the feeding frenzy is over and the show is over and the alligators start to swim away down the bayou, you know, they make that lazy... All of a sudden, a bullfrog on the bank got nervous and jumped into the air. And one of those gators came up out of the water and just swallowed down that bullfrog. Well, as soon as the first frog jumped, then there was another frog that jumped, and another frog that jumped, and another frog that jumped. There were about nine frogs in a row. One, two, three. And the gator just swam down and shot up in the air and caught each one as it jumped until it came to the one that didn't jump. And the one that didn't jump lived and all the bullfrogs down the line after it lived too. It just takes one to set everything on fire and one to put the fire out by not reacting. Mary goes to Jesus. She's anxious. She goes to Jesus, oh my gosh, son, there's no more wine. What are we going to do? because we wanna take on that problem and solve it. She's saying, just do something, you know, make it all better. And Jesus refuses to take on that anxiety. He Just doesn't get caught up in it. He doesn't buy into it. He doesn't let it dictate his actions. He points out to her that it isn't his problem. It isn't her problem. You know what, my hour hasn't come yet. It's not my wedding, mom. We don't have to do anything. We aren't the hosts instead of reacting, of just trying to make his mother happy, he starts thinking it through. He doesn't buy into the drama or the panic. When other people are upset, what that tells me is that it's okay to let them be upset. That when other people are feeling stressed out and anxious, we can just listen to them without having to rush in to solve the problem or without taking the anxiety onto ourselves. I don't know about you, this is a hard thing for me to do. I fail at it most of the time because I grew up in a family where I was the hero who was supposed to take on everybody's anxiety and fix all their stuff. It's not a good thing for them or for me when I do that. And I've learned that over the years, but it's really hard because my first knee-jerk reaction based on that is gonna be to rush in and somehow make it better. But Jesus stops and thinks, he's not rushed, he's not pressured, he's not assuming he has to do anything, he makes his own decision. It's what we call being self-differentiated. Being self-differentiated means we make our choices based on our own values and having assessed the situation and not just because somebody is screaming that the world is on fire. Mary's probably hoping that he's going to run down the street to the market and pick up some wine and solve the whole catastrophe so nobody's embarrassed. She's looking for, I think, an ordinary solution. Others have argued that she somehow knew this was his big moment for a miracle, but I don't think so. I think he knew it was not his wedding day, and she just wanted him to do something to make things better. But Jesus decides to go with the extraordinary and not the ordinary. He chooses a kingdom sign. Maybe that's why he hesitates to get involved. Maybe he knows that once he starts with this kingdom stuff, there'll be no turning back. Mary turns to the servants and tells them to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. Now, at this point, it's an act of faith or maybe it's an act of coercion and manipulation because Jesus hasn't in fact agreed yet to do anything. But if it's an act of faith, it's just like when we pray without any sign that God is going to listen to us without any sign that God is present or doing anything about it. And then we go forward and we act right with the assumption that God is with us and that God is going to be there. And that is faith. So there are six stone water jars. These things would be tilted up against the wall and they would be about this tall and they would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each. You can picture six of them. These are massive things in a corner. They're used for the water for purification rituals in the household. They are stone dry. That's a lot of emptiness. That's a 100 gallons basically of emptiness. How empty can life get? Yeah, how empty can we feel sometimes? Do you ever feel like you've just run out, flat run out, maybe of enthusiasm? You've run out of drive. You've run out of visions and dreams or motivation or maybe just out of resources. The wine is dried up. The ceremonial jars have run dry, very dry. They're dusty on the inside. Jesus turns to the servants and says, Fill the water jars. And so the servants start filling the jars. It's an act of obedience, unquestioning obedience, which means they have to take a bucket or a smaller jar of some sort and go out to the community well and fill this vessel and haul it back and pour it into these giant jugs. And they have to do this numerous times. Now, I don't know, an eight, a gallon of water weighs about eight pounds. A gallon of milk. But you think about it, they're not hauling that. They're hauling things that weigh probably 35 to 50 pounds when full. And they have to go out. And these wells, you either go down a series of stairs down to the water level in the well and then you have to climb your way back up again. Or you have some sort of a rope or whatever and you're lowering things to fill these vessels. So it's a lot of work. And it takes a long time. It's not an instant effort the filling of the jars. Imagine doing that when it seems pointless. There's a wedding going on. The servants were probably serving the guests and passing around the canapes and all of a sudden Jesus tells them to fill the water jars. Why? There's no water rituals about to take place How often do our efforts in life seem pointless? How often do we question them because they're about as exciting as toting water for no apparent reason? You know, there's a certain amount of drudgery in life, right? Things that we do that are part of our bigger calling. And we do them, why? Because God told us to do them. Tend the garden, grow something, be productive, produce. Raise your children, help the neighbor, heal the sick, teach the Sunday school class, and on and on and on, fill the jars. And so the servants fill them all the way up to the top. It's not wine yet. It's not the good stuff, but at least some of the emptiness is gone. It's a process, I think, this filling and this transforming, and it doesn't happen instantly. The anxiety isn't abated instantly. Problems are not solved instantly. But there's this effort and there's this time of unknowing. As we put one foot in front of the other and we go on with our tasks, assuming that God is going to be there for us, it may take decades. It may take a lifetime of faithful effort before the fruit of what we're doing achieves its results, you know, that we can see the results. Maybe we don't see the results and they show up for somebody else. You know, Jesus once said, sometimes you're going to tend and you're going to do all of the planting and the weeding and everything else, but somebody else is going to come along and enjoy the harvest. But eventually, Jesus tells the servants to draw some of the water out of the jars and take it to the master of the banquet and they do now I don't know if the water in the jars has turned to wine doesn't say that or just the water in the chalice that they draw out has turned into wine but we don't know that or maybe it just and I assume becomes wine the minute he puts it to his lips and tastes it same as with communion When the ordinary thing in the cup becomes the extraordinary presence of God within us in the moment that we receive it in faith. All I know is that the wine steward tastes the water that has become wine and he is amazed that this is even better stuff than what the host had been serving before because in his practical mind, you know, this would be the time to haul out the really cheap you know, dollar store wine when nobody's going to notice and save a few bucks. But no, he honors the bridegroom and the, and the host of the wedding and says, wow, look what you've done. You served up great stuff and now it's even more fabulous. But the master of the banquet does not know that a miracle has taken place. The ones who know a miracle has taken place are the servants who fill the water jars. They're the only ones who really know, and Mary, what has happened. They're the ones who saw it, the ones that put in the work. They get to see this miracle revealed and they are the lowest people at the party, the slaves, who aren't invited but who serve. When Jesus supplies this wine at Cana in Galilee, he reveals himself to us as the true bridegroom he is now the host of the party he is the one who puts on the abundant display and we are the guests who get to show up his wine of blessing never runs out but endlessly and eternally overflows so that when we have run out of resources and run out of ideas and run out of energy, and run out of compassion and hope, when our faith is dried up and our supplies are like dust, he invites us to get involved and to get moving and to listen to him and to be engaged. And then he takes our labors and he transforms it into a source of joy and wonder and revelation. The wedding feast of the Lamb once slain has begun.